All right. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, we are in the second week of a short two-week series called Don't Mess with My Grande Non-Fat Vanilla Latte Faith. It's a catchy title, isn't it? It really just rolls off the tongue. Uh, I have to tell you, my big disappointment in this series is that our senior pastor, Bob Merritt, isn't speaking because I would have paid money to hear him say that title three times in one weekend. By the 11 o'clock service, it would have been, don't mess with my big fat vanilla wedding. I mean, it just would have been completely different, so we missed out big time. But the reason we titled the series that is because we live in a consumer culture. Now, it's not like previous generations weren't consumeristic, but it might surprise you how much the world has changed in the last 50 years or so. For example, Starbucks was founded in 1971, and it didn't become that profitable until the 1990s. Whole generations of people drinking Folgers coffee instead of a tall, triple grande, turtle mocha latte with soy milk, caramel drizzle, no foam, no fat, sugar-free with extra espresso and whip at exactly 152 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, how did those people manage back then? We live in a consumeristic culture. We want things our way. And not only do we want them our way, but we don't want to wait for them to be our way. I was ordering a birthday gift for one of my sons off of Amazon Prime, and it showed up on my doorstep three days later. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It's supposed to be here in two days. Now, no matter that it's being shipped from Taiwan to Ham Lake, Minnesota, I'm going, it's supposed to be here in two. What's wrong with you? Or my kids will be on the computer waiting for a video to upload. And by waiting, I mean 25 seconds. And they just lose their mind. I mean, they're pushing the screen like it's a touch button thing. They're pushing every button on the computer. And finally, they'll go, oh, the Wi-Fi here is so slow. I'm like, can you give it 25 seconds? It's going to space. Can you give it 25 seconds to get back from space, please? And I realize that I sound like an old fuddy-duddy when I say this, but I'm 38 years old now, so I can start to get away with this kind of thing. But I'll ask my kids, have you ever heard this sound before? Some of you are like, no, no, not again. But that's the sound of dial-up, and you used to have to wait for your computer to dial up, and it was miserable. And it was even worse if you were like me, because we only had one telephone line at home. So if I was at basketball practice, and I was trying to call home for a ride, and my mom was on the computer, here's the sound that I would hear. We didn't have call waiting. Call waiting was wait for mom to get off the computer so you can call home. Okay, that's pretty much what call waiting was. And our phones were attached to the wall. Some of you teenagers, you early 20-somethings are like, Whoa, they were attached to the wall, which meant if I wanted to talk on the phone and I didn't want my parents to hear what I was saying, I had to try to go around the corner and my parents would yell at me, don't stretch the cord. I heard that like every day, don't stretch the cord. And it was a rotary phone, so it took minutes to call people. And if you had a friend in your, you know, that you were trying to call who had two zeros in their number, forget it. I mean, zero was way down here. You're like, I'll call somebody else and invite them to the party. 
Some of you are like, now it makes sense. I never got invited to anything. We had two zeros in your phone number, okay? You were a pain for everybody to call. Comedian Louis C.K. has a great stand-up act about this. He talks about how people talk about their airline flights like they're on a German cattle car in the 1940s or something. You'll ask people, you know, how was your flight? Oh, they didn't board us for 20 minutes. And then we sat on the runway for 40 minutes. Oh, yeah, what happened next? Did you fly? Did you fly through the air like a bird? Did you partake in the miracle of flight while you're sitting down in a chair? You're in a chair up in the sky. Or people will say, you know, my flight got delayed. New York to L.A. takes five hours. That trip used to take five months, and people would die along the way. That's a delay for you, okay? But that's just the culture we live in today. And there's not necessarily anything even wrong with that. It's just how it is, except for when it begins to spill into our faith. Our consumerism begins to affect our beliefs about God. And sometimes I'll be talking to a person, and you can kind of just tell that they like it when the Bible says that God is love, but they don't like it when it talks about how he judges sin. Or, or they're really excited about the parts where Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor, but they're not as excited when he says that I'm the only way to heaven. Or, or they get pumped when it says, you know, God wants to give and serve, but then they say, wait a minute, yeah, I don't know about this God who wants me to sacrifice of myself. And while you're in it, or while you're at it, throw in a shot of something that aligns with my political views. And pretty soon you have a Jesus that you've ordered off the menu. Or we don't want to wait for our prayers to be answered. And we don't want to wait two weeks or two years. We want our prayers answered in like two minutes. And yet the Bible frequently says that we need to wait on the Lord. Look what it says in Psalm 130 about this. He says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. That's hard for us to do. It's hard to wait on the Lord when you're not used to waiting for your coffee. In fact, some sociologists are now pointing out that our consumeristic culture is stealing our sense of awe and amazement. For example, I can be driving in the car, talking on the phone, and while I'm talking on the phone, my GPS can tell me where to turn. And if somebody else calls me, I can put this person on hold, I can talk to the other person, all while my GPS continues to tell me where to go. And in the world we live in today, that doesn't amaze me at all. Interestingly, it doesn't amaze God either. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but God is not amazed by our advances in technology. It's not like God's up in heaven gathering all the angels around the Amazon Echo going, you got to see this thing. It does anything you tell it to do. Watch this. He's just not doing that. He's not amazed by those things. What does amaze God? Well, I was listening to a message by another pastor recently, and he pointed out that there are two things that amazed Jesus. The first one is found in Mark chapter 6. And Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth to teach. And it says that many of the people were blown away by his teaching. I mean, it's wisdom and it's power. But then there was another group of people who looked at Jesus and said, wait, isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that the carpenter? I mean, his sisters still live in town. We've known him since he was a little kid. And it says they were deeply offended and they refuse to believe. Look what it says 
happens in the next verse. It says, and because of their unbelief, Jesus couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. She got a little kick out of that, by the way. I mean, Jesus is saying, all I could do is put my hands on a few sick people and heal them. I'm going, that seems cool to me. But apparently that's a bad day for Jesus at the office. But here's a verse I want you to see. Verse 6. It says, and Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. He wasn't amazed at their lack of love. He wasn't amazed at their lack of religion. He wasn't even amazed at who they voted for in the last election. How can you call yourself a Christian and vote for that person? He wasn't amazed by any of those things. It says he was amazed at their lack of faith. And not only was he amazed by their lack of faith, but it was their lack of faith that caused them to miss the miracle. It says he couldn't do any miracles among them because of their lack of faith. Contrast that to a story that's found in Matthew chapter 8. It's about a Roman centurion, which is an officer in the Roman army. And this officer has a servant who's very sick, even to the point of death. And so he hears about this man, Jesus, who can heal people. And so he sends a few of the Jewish religious leaders to find him and request that he comes to this man's house. But before Jesus can get to his house, he sends a message out to Jesus. And here's what the message says. Don't trouble yourself by coming to my house. I'm not worthy of such an honor. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd, he said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. There's that word again, amazed. But this time, Jesus isn't amazed by their lack of faith. He's amazed by this man's big faith. This Roman centurion believed that Jesus had so much authority over heaven and earth that he didn't even have to put his hands on the servant. He could just say the word and he would be healed. And he was. Today's message is titled Big Faith. And I am going to try to urge all of us, myself included, to a bigger kind of faith. The kind of faith that believes that God can do just anything. The kind of faith that moves mountains and doesn't miss miracles. The kind of faith that would have amazed Jesus. But as I put together this message, I kept coming back to the same question. Why do people care? I mean, if you're a communicator, that's the first question that you have to answer is, why do people care about this? In other words, why do you want a big faith? Why not just have a halfway faith? Seems to me you can have a pretty good life with a halfway faith. You can make a lot of money, you can have a functional family, you can have fun on the weekends, all with a halfway faith. So why not just tune me out for the next 15 minutes or so as I urge you to take a step in your faith? I asked my wife that question, and she said, you know, in Proverbs 31, it's describing this woman of big faith. And one of the ways that it describes her is it says, she has no fear of the future. My wife said, I want that. I don't want to be anxious about our kids and their future. I don't want to be afraid to die. I don't want to be fearful of what the future might hold. But you only get that when you have a big kind of faith. It also strikes me that a halfway faith, and I'll define what that is in just a moment. A halfway faith misses the miracle. That's what happened in the hometown of Jesus. It says that they missed the miracle. Let me ask you, how many of us here today 
would say, I need God to do a miracle in my life. Our family right now, we just, we need God to do a miracle. My health, I need a miracle. My son or my daughter, I need God to do a miracle in their life. That there's just something in your life where you go, if God doesn't supernaturally intervene, I am going to be completely stuck. Now get this, just because you have big faith doesn't mean that God is going to do that miracle. This is where a lot of people get tripped up. Your faith cannot manipulate God that way. But a lack of faith seems to ensure that God won't do the miracle. Because that's what the verse just said, that Jesus couldn't do any miracles among them. It's not that he didn't want to do any miracles. He couldn't because of their lack of faith. Let me ask you, if Jesus were to look at the level of faith in your life right now, would he be amazed at how big and bold and audacious your faith is? Or would he be amazed at your lack of faith? It's an interesting question to consider. In fact, maybe another way to think about this is if God were to answer every one of your prayers this week, so whatever you pray, God's like, yep, 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 I'll do that, done. What would be different in the world today? Some of you would say, man, the world would be very different. People would be coming to Christ, churches would get started, kids would get fed, single moms would be cared for, orphans would get adopted. Others of us would say, you know, if, if God answered every one of my prayers this week, my food would be extremely blessed. Because that's kind of what we pray is, Lord, bless this food to my body. Or we would have gotten to grandma's house safe. Or the wild would win the Stanley Cup playoffs. Thank you, Lord, for coming into our world and doing a miracle. Would Jesus be amazed at your big faith? Or would he be amazed at your lack of faith? No matter how you would answer that question today, I believe that you can walk out of church with a bigger faith. The kind of faith that believes that God can do anything. The kind of faith that doesn't miss the miracle. But how is that going to happen? Well, let me give you two ways that you can have a bigger kind of faith. Both, both of them from Hebrews chapter 11. Here's the first way. Pursue a big God with bigger faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of the faith chapter in the Bible. Look at what it says in verse 6. It says, without faith... It is impossible to please God. Real quick, how do you please God? Is it rules? Is it religion? Is it rituals? Is it confirmation? Is it catechism? No, no, no. He says it's faith. I can't stress this to you enough. Faith is what pleases God. He goes on in the very next verse and he says this. For anyone who wants to draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Notice the author of Hebrews says that we must believe two things. First, you must believe that God exists. And second, you must believe that he rewards those who seek him. Many Americans believe that God exists. Not as many Americans seem to believe that God rewards those who seek him. This is what I was talking about earlier when I referenced a halfway faith. A halfway faith believes that God exists, but doesn't necessarily believe that God rewards those who seek him. Because if they did believe that, they would what? They would seek him. In fact, if you were to pull the average American on the street today, and you ask them, do you believe that there's a God who exists? 90% of them would say yes. 
Latest Gallup poll says 90% of Americans still believe that there is a God. If you ask that same 90%, well, do you believe that God rewards those who seek him? In other words, do you go to church so that you can get to know God and worship him? Do you pray and read the Bible so you can have a personal relationship with him? Do you hang out with other Christians so their faith begins to rub off on you? Not as many of the 90% would say yes to that. It's a halfway kind of faith. Now, you all are in church today, so that speaks volumes about your desire to seek out and to pursue God in your life. In fact, some of us might be here today, and, and you might say, you know, I actually am not sure if God exists. And I would say to you, well, you've taken a step to seek him, and so you're actually halfway there. In fact, I want to invite you to our series after Easter. We're starting a brand new series called I Believe in God, But... We're going to talk about the objections and questions that people have around Christianity. Be a perfect series for you. But here's again what Hebrews says. It says, for anyone who wants to draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, some people see a verse like that and they go, oh, I've got faith. I mean, you hear people say that all the time. I'm a person of faith. I have faith. And whenever I hear that, my question is, faith in what? Because everybody has a faith in something. Some people have faith in themselves. Some people have faith in the progress of humanity or science. But it's not a question, do you have faith? The question is, what is your faith in? And oftentimes, the size of your faith is directly related to the size of your God. When my son Micah was in first grade, he asked me if I was faster than Adrian Peterson. And when I told him no, he was shocked. He was like, Really? You are really fast, though, Dad. That same year, he asked me if I was stronger than Nikola Pekovic, who used to play center for the Minnesota Timberwolves. Here's a picture of Nikola Pekovic. Here's a picture of me photoshopped next to Nikola Pekovic. Now, this has nothing to do with the message, but I just have to tell you, I got an email this week that came across my inbox And the producer who was putting together this slide was asking the graphic designer if he could make me look smaller so that there was a greater contrast between me and Pekovic. And I just thought, wow, my confidence went through the roof. So just know, this is photoshopped, okay? I'm way bigger in person, but we just did it for the contrast. But you can tell that looking at this picture, my son should have known the answer as to who is stronger But when I told him that Pekovic was stronger, he disputed that claim. And he said, I think you're at least as strong as he is. That was in first grade. When my son was in third grade, he told me that one of his friends, who was also in third grade, would beat me in a 100-yard dash. (laughs) He said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, I'm not as fast as I used to be, but I am not going to lose to a third grader in a 100-yard dash. That was in third grade. These days, my son is in fifth grade. And he walks into the room and he says, hey, dad, have you ever seen the movie The Dummy Who Said No? I said, no. (laughs) And he walked out of the room going, (laughs) you can use that if you want to. Now, what happened here? Some of you are like, I got to get my notes out. This is a great message. (laughs) Write this down. Now, what happened here? Four years ago, I was faster than AP, and I was stronger than Pekovic, and now I'm the dummy who says no. (laughs) Now, 
unfortunately, I think that's how we sometimes treat God. That at one point in our life, we thought God was stronger. And he was more powerful and he could do anything in your life. But over time, our view of him became smaller. A little bit more manageable. Or maybe our view of ourselves became bigger. But either way, as our view of God began to diminish, so did our faith. Friends, I believe in a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present. I believe in a God who is high and exalted, whose thoughts are higher than my thoughts and whose ways are beyond my ways. I believe in a God whose love I cannot be separated from, whose power I can't contain, and whose mercy I do not deserve. I believe in a God who exists outside the four dimensions of space, but who can make and break into the laws of nature anytime he wants. I believe in a God who spoke the world into existence with one word and a God who will reign forever. And it's because of that that Ephesians chapter 3 says this. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. If you think about that problem or that issue in your life right now, you just need to know that you cannot measure or contain all that God is able to do. It's more than you've ever asked or imagined. Let me ask you, do you believe that today? My wife was having coffee with a friend a while back, and this friend said, you know, I, I, I hear you talk about God, and I see your faith, and I want that faith, but I just don't know how to get it. And my wife pointed her to Romans chapter 10, verse 17, which says, faith comes by hearing the word of God. In other words, you don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm going to big faith today. Big faith. I'm going to pump myself up and I'm just going to get it. No, no. You read the Bible. You hear the word of God. And over time, it begins to change the way that you think. Try reading a chapter like Psalm 103 this week. And as you read that chapter, and if you're a person who doesn't normally read the Bible, open up your Bible the halfway through, point down, you'll probably be in the Psalms. It's a silent P, P-S-A-L-M-S, and look for the big 103. That's the chapter I want you to read. And as you read that chapter this week, begin to pray and say, God, give me a vision for who you truly are. Show me how big and how able you are in my life. Because if you get that, you will have a bigger kind of faith. Second way to have a bigger faith is this. You have to step out to find out. As I mentioned, Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of the big faith chapter. And the author goes on, he gives several examples of big faith. In verse 7, he says this. By faith, Noah built an ark to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about something that had never happened before. Isn't that crazy? God comes to Noah. He says, I want you to build a big boat. Noah goes, well, why would I do that? He says, the earth is going to flood. Noah goes, I don't know what you're talking about. That's never happened before. How do you obey God over something that has never happened before? Two words, by faith. Verse 8, by faith. Abraham obeyed when God told him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him. He went without knowing where he was going. God goes to Abraham and he says, I want you to leave your homeland and go to this other place. 
And Abraham goes, well, where is it? And God doesn't answer. How do you obey God and go someplace that you've never seen or been before? Two words, by faith. Now, most likely, God is not going to ask you to build a big boat or to travel to a faraway land. But he may ask you to give up your Wednesday nights. He may ask you to begin to serve on Wednesday nights and be a small group leader for middle school or high school students. By faith, hundreds of you do this. You give up a weeknight that you could be watching TV or doing anything else because you believe that God is going to use you to reach the next generation by faith. By faith, this past fall, hundreds of you began to tithe. You started giving 10% of your hard-earned paycheck to further the work of God in this world through the local church. And if some of your friends knew that you did this, they would think you're crazy, but you believe that God can do more with a 90% than you can do with 100. And you believe that God is going to use that generosity to reach people for Christ and that God will bless you in return by faith. By faith, some of you started leading a small group. And you said, I can't do that. I don't know the Bible well enough. I'm just not qualified. And now you're doing it. And those people are some of your closest friends. By faith, some of you have invited another person to church. This past fall, my wife and I invited some friends of ours to come to church. And after three times, the wife pulled me aside, and I think she had tears in her eyes. And she said, I just got to thank you for inviting me to your church. She said, I look forward to it every week. She said, I never thought I would say that about a church. That short conversation was one of the highlights of my year. Friends, next weekend is Easter, and it is one of the weekends throughout the year that people are going, and we should go to church. We should try to find a church to go to. And they're just waiting for someone to come along and invite them to church. We've got a powerful service plan. What if God used you this week? And by faith, you invited that person to come. But you got to step out to find out. You've got to take a faith-filled risk. I've done this illustration before, so if you've been here for over 10 years, you'll maybe remember me doing this. But I'm getting older all the time, so it gets more interesting. Maybe I'll fall one of these times. But I think a balance beam is a good illustration for our lives as Christians and our spiritual life. Because oftentimes when we first start out, we say, you know what, God, I will take any step that you want me to take. I will go anywhere. I will do anything. But over time we start to get a little bit more comfortable. And we say, you know, I don't know if I want to take any more of these big steps of faith. It seems kind of risky to me. I Don't mess with my grande non-fat vanilla latte faith, God. And so we kind of just sit down like this, and we just kind of play it comfortable. And this is how you look right here. <laughs> and... You know, we say, God, I'm just, I'm going to have a nice little family, and we're going to live in the safest neighborhood, and the kids are not leaving the house. And, and if they do, they're wearing a helmet, that's for sure. And, and even more importantly than that, we start to say, you know, God, I don't want to take any more big steps of faith. I mean, don't ask me to sign up for that missions trip, because that's just so out of my comfort zone. And uh, don't ask me to invite that person to church, because what if they say No. And, and I don't want to open up and talk about how I'm really feeling and how I'm really doing, because what if they reject me for that? 
And then we live our life like that. And towards the end of our life, our one prayer becomes this, oh, Lord, I just want to die in my sleep. I mean, that would just be so much more comfortable than some of these other ways that you can go. And so we do. We slip off the balance beam of life. And we realize that we're standing before the judge. So we go, ta-da. I mean, can you imagine if a girl in the Olympics did that? She just held on for a few minutes and then stuck the landing. (laughs) What's the judge supposed to mark on his card? One day, each of us is going to stand before the ultimate judge to give an account of our life. And in that moment, I do not want to hear God say, way to go. You live the safest life possible because you want to know what God loves. God loves faith. He loves big, bold, audacious kind of faith, the kind of faith that says, God, I will go anywhere. I will do anything. I will take the step, even if it's risky to me, even if it's out of my comfort zone. God, I will go. I will do that. And that kind of faith is both a belief and an action. And so let me ask you, what step of faith might God be calling you to take this week? For some of you, maybe it's a book that God wants you to write. Maybe it's a class that he wants you to teach or to lead. Maybe it's to invite another person to church. Maybe it's to open up and confess some things that you've been struggling with and find healing and forgiveness. But what is that step of faith that God may want you to take? For some of us, the step might simply be to ask God for more faith. You know, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is Mark chapter 9. And in verse 24, there's a father whose son is possessed by some evil spirits, and he doesn't know what to do. And and so he comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, do something if you can. And I love those last three words, if you can. I mean, I I would have loved to have had a camera on Jesus when he hears those three words. He's probably going... If, if I, who is this guy? If I can, come on. Like those three words are not in God's vocabulary. And so Jesus responds back to him. He says, why do you say if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. And then here's the verse I want you to see because the man responds back to Jesus. And he says, I do believe. But help my unbelief. And I go back to that verse often. Because sometimes when I'm in church and we're worshiping together and I think about those problems or those issues in my life, I think, oh, that's nothing for God. And I believe. And then I go home and I eat some Chipotle and run around with the kids and watch some TV and 11 o'clock at night I'm laying there going, do I believe? Do I really think that? Maybe I was wrong about that. And so I will oftentimes say to God, God, you know my heart, you know I believe, but would you help me with my unbelief? Would you give me a greater faith to see who you are and what you can do in my life? In fact, today as we close out today's service, we wanted to do something that we hope will increase your faith. We wanted to celebrate communion with one another. And this weekend isn't just any weekend in the church calendar, it's a weekend known as Palm Sunday. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's the week before Easter. It's the week that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowd was waving palm branches to him, hence the name Palm Sunday. 
Kind of picture a Super Bowl parade for Jesus. But instead of a Corvette and confetti, you've got a donkey and palm branches, and people are yelling things out to Jesus like, you are the Son of God. You are the Savior of the world. And a week later, they killed him. A week later, they pounded nails into his wrists. And they strung him up on a cross. And they crucified him. And they watched for hours as Jesus struggled to push himself up so that his lungs wouldn't collapse. All the while, his exposed spine is rubbing up against a splintered cross. And they killed him. You know, I mentioned that we're not the first generation of consumers. You see, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that Sunday, the crowd was cheering him because they thought that he had come to overthrow the Roman government. The Israelites had lived under the oppression of Rome. They were taxed by Rome. They were mistreated by Rome. And they thought, oh, this is about to all end. Here comes Jesus. He's going to do it. And then throughout that week, they started to hear some of the things that Jesus had taught. Things like, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross. People say, I don't want to do that. And if you want to follow me, you need to die to yourself. And they say, well, I'm not going to do that. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, I came to serve, not to be served. And they said, well, wait a minute. We, we thought you were here to serve us. We, we thought you were just going to do good things for us. I mean, wait a minute, that isn't true. And they said, don't mess with my grande, non-fat, vanilla latte faith. And they killed him. And so as we receive communion today, we remind ourselves that while faith is a free gift to us, it cost Jesus his life. Back to this time, I want to invite the communion servers down. You can begin passing out the elements. If you're on a campus where it's the end of your row, go ahead and pass that down at this time. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. He then raised up a cup and he said, this is my blood which has been shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so we do. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but you do have to be a follower of Christ, the Bible says. And it's a little tricky. You have to peel it back once on the top to get to the bread. Then you have to peel it back again to get to the juice. And I'm going to encourage you not just to rip it open and take it right away, but just sit with it for a moment and spend some time praying to God quietly in your mind. And just ask God, God, what is that step of faith that you want me to take? And then be open that God might speak to you through your thoughts and might speak to you about that. As all this is going on, our worship team is going to be playing some music behind us, and then they're going to lead us in a final closing song.